These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. Hattusili I arose to power in the midst of a massive rebellion. He built a solid empire. He went farther than any Anatolian king before him. He lost his empire, and at the end of our episode two weeks ago, he's put the pieces back together again and is finally ready for the thing he really has his sights set on, surpassing the empire of Sargon the Great, now some 600 years gone. It's hard to say exactly what year it is. As mentioned, his annals only cover the highlights from six of his 30 years on the throne, but it's reasonable to think that as our story begins today, spring is dawning on perhaps the year 1630 BCE. He spent 20 years building his foundations, and now he puts out a call to arms for the largest campaign that any Anatolian king has ever before mobilized for. Heading south from Hattusha, the Hittite army likely gathered troops en route until reaching the famous mountain passes of the Cilician Gates, the usual passage into Syria. They came upon the city of Zaruna, and I should say at the outset that most of these places in this campaign are nothing more than names, nothing else is known about them, either from ancient records or archaeological excavations. But the city of Zarna was overwhelmed quickly by an army assembled for much larger prey. It was assaulted quickly and plundered quickly, but word got out that Hattusili was attacking the cities of Yamhad. By the time he reached his next target, Hashua, the area was well defended, not only by the locals, but also by reinforcements from their overlords in Aleppo. A battle was fought well away from the city, on the slopes of Mount Attalur, but here too the enemy was overrun by the shock and maneuver of the Hittite army, and Hashua was put to the sack as well. It's almost certain that he stopped by a number of minor cities on this campaign, perhaps pillaging with detachments from the main force, but the third major city on his second Syrian campaign was Zipasna, which his army approached in the dead of night, assaulting the city under the cover of darkness, and storming the defenses while they were still sounding the alarm. As a display of both discipline and flexibility that many ancient armies were simply unable to match, night assaults were beloved by Hittite commanders, one more way to hit an enemy which bypassed fortifications and preparation. Indeed, so complete was the surprise that it seems a detachment of reinforcements from the nearby city of Haha was caught out arriving late to the battle, and either forced to retreat or defeated in a separate engagement. Now, whether Hattusili had always intended to go after Haha in this campaign, or if the appearance of Haha's troops after the Zipasna assault drew his ire, this last move would be the capstone of his great Syrian campaign. Haha, with the very funny name, was on the opposite side of the Euphrates River, and Hattusili made certain that he crossed that river first out of his whole army, wading along a shallow part on foot. This made him, by his estimation, the first Anatolian to ever cross the Euphrates River. While generations of Anatolian merchants and travelers almost certainly beat him in a technical sense, he is certainly the first Anatolian king to get this far in an official capacity. Not only did he cross, 
he brought his whole army over with him and proceeded to lay siege to Haha. Three times he assaulted the gates and twice he was repulsed. The mighty Sargon of Akkad had also crossed the Euphrates River at this point, maybe 700 years prior, and he also had to contend with Haha as he passed. But where the storied conqueror of old had simply bypassed the city after a small skirmish, Hattushili plundered and burned it to the ground, taking with him everything of value. In this, the great king claimed he demonstrated that he was the superior conqueror. Now, who was the better conqueror is certainly debatable, to say the least, and from our more neutral perspective, it's hard to give Hattushili as much credit as he would like to give himself, but that isn't to say at all that what he has accomplished is anything less than remarkable. This is the capstone of his great annals, and though he has a few more years to take a few more solid successes, he appears to have regarded this as the height of his own life. Almost certainly, it was a great end to a fantastic campaign year, and the soldiers must have returned home in high spirits. But they didn't return home with only high spirits to show for themselves. Two of their primary targets were taken with relatively little fighting, the overwhelmed cities of Izipasna and Zarina. In these places, there was still pillaging, but it was restrained to a certain degree. Some food would have been left, wanted destruction and murder would be minimal, and the local lord would have been kept in power if he swore to his new overlord, and if the great king trusted that oath. While even light pillaging might sound harsh to us nowadays, the Hittites were not cruel people, and they never celebrate the destruction of their foes like some other cultures did. War was a business, a necessary thing required by both gods and the people to legitimize a king and bring in the wealth needed for a great empire. We can see this in the treatment of the gods of the captured cities. The important men of the army, along with the priests, would respectfully enter the temple of the conquered city, with the appropriate prayers and at least nominal submission of the local priests if they chose not to resist to the bitter end, the conquerors would enter into the holiest inner sanctum wherein resided the god himself. This god had clearly chosen the Hittites to be victorious, since it was to the great king that he had delivered the city, and so the cult statue, in which the god himself resided, would be packed up neatly into a portable shrine, carefully guarded and appeased by sacrifices, rituals, and prayers, and then carried back with the rest of the army to be enshrined more permanently, either in Hattusha or in one of the nearby temple cities. With the god gone, the temple was now no longer a holy place, and so all the valuables belonged to no one so was not impious at all to loot it for everything of worth. And in fact, it seems it wasn't just the gently plundered cities that had the gods respected. Even those cities who offered the most ferocious resistance would see the gods politely rehoused before the rest of the city was burned to the ground. This was the fate that awaited the towns that had resisted most fiercely. In this campaign, the cities of Hashua and Haha the Hittites weren't naturally cruel, but when they had a message to send, they were capable of sending it in creative and memorable ways. 
Once the gods were respectfully removed, both cities were burned to the ground. Everything of value was packed into carts, and the entire populace, from top to bottom, was enslaved. From this particular campaign, we hear that enough silver was stolen to fill two carts, a fairly remarkable amount indicating a substantial degree of wealth along his corridor of conquest. Then, the kings of Hashua and Haha were tied to these carts along with the donkeys and made to carry the plunder of their own city all the way back to Hattusha. There is no word of their fate after this, but this level of direct humiliation, being tied with the beasts of burden, may have been reserved for these two kings as a singularly creative cruelty, but almost certainly the army would have been escorting a train of new slaves, numbering in the thousands, and their first tasks in bondage would also likely involve carrying things in the baggage train under heavy guard. When the great king returned, just before the onset of winter that year, he brought with him enough loot to make up for having taken a substantial fraction of productive men who could have been working the underpopulated fields of the Hattian heartland that year. He brought slaves enough to help offset the chronic underpopulation of the empire in general, many of whom were put to work doing essentially what they had been doing beforehand, just with the taxes going to a different master. He brought a host of new gods who would be worshipped alongside existing ones, given all the same respect and offerings as a native god. The Second Syrian Campaign was a turning point in many other, more fundamental ways. And perhaps this is where we should more properly mark the beginning of the Hittite Empire. This campaign brought with it an incredible amount of prestige. To my mind, this almost goes without saying and I would usually discard it as the least important part of a campaign. But in many ways, the psychological impact of victory for Hittites could well have been more important than the loot itself. In last week's discussion of the myth of the vanishing god, we looked at how crucial it was to gain and hold the favor of the gods. But it was victory in battle, as much as sacrifice and piety, that proved the gods were favoring a king's cause. Even today, many in the modern U.S. military believe that without their god on America's side, victory in our many wars is impossible. Even without keeping the gods in mind, success breeds a sense of inevitability, as much then as it does now. The Hittite king was reliant on his many vassals, and they needed to be sure that they had backed the right horse, or they were at constant risk of revolting. The march into northern Syria also brought a much higher level sort of wealth than mere plunder. These cities were wealthy because they sat on the main overland trade route from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean. Boat travel was the safest and easiest way to move large amounts of cargo, everything from grain to metals to finished goods. But to link the markets of Egypt and the eastern Mediterranean with the markets of Mesopotamia, all that cargo had to be carried from a Levantine port, often the north Phoenician city of Ugarit, all the way to a city along the upper Euphrates, like Haha, where it could be sailed downriver to the great markets of Babylonia. Now, control of trade is important in any period, but the Hittites need it especially because they may have been almost completely cut off from tin, the important component of bronze by this point. 
By the time of Hattusili, the slow death of the Assyrian merchant colonies is complete, and there's now no direct linkage of trade from the tin mines that may have been in modern Iran or Afghanistan, or perhaps even further east. That trade nearly all flows across northern Syria now, and by sacking the main trade line, the great king secured a substantial amount of tin for his bronze-hungry army. He didn't necessarily conquer and hold the towns that he pillaged, the way we've seen with the great Mesopotamian empires, and for a long time it was believed that this campaign was nothing but a Bronze Age smash-and-grab, the sort of thing barbarians might undertake. But relatively recently, archaeologists discovered a remarkable letter, the only one known from the Old Kingdom period sent from Hattusili to a minor king named Tunaya of Tikunani, which has many people reassessing the aftermath of the Second Syrian Campaign. It isn't too long, and surviving documents from this period are scarce, so it's worth reading the full thing out for you in Harry Hoffner's translation. Say to Tunaya, my servant, Thus speaks Labarna, the great king. You are my servant. Protect me, and I will protect you as my servant. The city of Tikunani is my city, and you are my servant. And your country is my country. I will surely protect you. My campaign has begun, so you should be a man with respect to the man of Haha. Devour his food rations like a dog. The oxen you shall take shall be your own. The sheep and goats which you take shall be your own. Be a man with respect to him. I from this side and you from that side. Now, send me the iron and the lion, which I heard they brought back from the city of Nihria. And whatever you need, as much as you need, write me about it, and I will send them to you, whether it be silver or horses. And my important servant, my faithful servant, I will send it to you. When I come to Zalpa, send Bullet Adi and your servant to me. If there is some Isu horn, send it to me as well. If there is some horse hairs, white or black, send them also to me. Do not listen to the lying words which he says. Keep to the bull's horns and the lion's side, and don't take the side of the fox. The fox who does these lying things, he acted like the Zalprins acted. Stop listening to the words on the left or the right. Listen carefully to my words. Now this letter is actively under debate, and we probably need to uncover more to have a better sense of the geopolitical situation. But it appears that the Second Syrian Campaign may not have been the one-and-done affair that it's portrayed in Hattusili's annals may have taken more than one year, may have included a number of follow-up expeditions, and most importantly, it clearly involved a diplomatic front running in parallel to the military one. Here we see that this tiny kingdom, probably located in Upper Mesopotamia about halfway between the Tigris and Euphrates River, well past the stated extent of Hattusili's direct conquests, has offered itself as a loose vassal in exchange for mutual support in the various wars of the region. Be a man, Hattusili urges, a telling euphemism for make war, and provide support for the great king's great battle against the fortified city of Haha, taking whatever can be pillaged as a reward. 
All this talk of servant is taken by some to be a mere affectation for what's really a mutual support alliance. After all, both sides are splitting the loot against a mutual enemy. But the later lines indicate that the Hittites really are involved in the politics of Upper Syria. From the city of Nihria, whose location isn't completely certain, Hattusili appears to be making claim on the raw iron and a lion statue from that city. We can read this as him using his position as the senior treaty partner to lay claim on particular pieces of loot, or we can see his later insistence that he will send any amount of silver and horses as compensation for these pieces of treasure. These are both framed as an exchange of gifts, since direct buying and selling by ancient kings was considered inappropriate. Instead, it was right for a king in his dominance to request specific gifts, and in his beneficence offer up a portion of his own wealth that just so happens to be of approximately equal value. So much of all these diplomatic correspondences are concerned with appearance, but in that too we get to see both the nitty-gritty of how communication between states was handled, as well as how the kings wished to be seen by the public. Additionally, we hear from the city of Zalpa on the upper Euphrates, not the similarly named Zalpua of the Thirty Sons, which appears to have been recently conquered. Bullet Adi may have been the lord of the city, and for King Tunaya to be handing over a defeated lord under guard to Hattushili strongly suggests that ties of vassalage, even for such a distant kingdom, were stronger than mere enemy-of-my-enemy political expediency. Though Hattusili is wise to how far away Tanaya is from the center of Hittite power, and admonishes him not to listen to clever foxes and the lies of those to his left and right, but to stay by him, Hattusili, the conquering lion. All of which gets us back to our original point. The Hittites invaded a major trade route, and while they clearly left a great deal of destruction in their wake, those cities that weren't sacked seem to have been brought under the great king's political aegis. For the first time in perhaps a century, trade would again flow into Anatolia by way of these vassal states, allowing the growing empire to once again access critical resources to fuel the military machine. But it isn't just goods that they brought back. The death of the Assyrian trade posts had also brought about the complete death of literacy in Anatolia. As hard as it is for us to imagine nowadays, when the Assyrians left after two or three hundred years of spreading Akkadian texts around the region, there simply wasn't anyone left who could read or write, and those skills had died out completely. It was the massive influx of new slaves from the literate lands of Syria that had brought scribes back to Anatolia. And it was here for the first time that, under the direction of Hattusili himself, these new scribes were instructed to adapt the Akkadian cuneiform system to Nishili, the Indo-European language of the Hittite ruling class. Eduba schools were established to train a new generation of natives to scribe in the Hittite language and in Akkadian, which remained the lingua franca of business and diplomacy for the entire region. This is why we have written records from Hattusili, but not from his grandfather. 
and it should not be understated how powerful it is to finally have enduring and institutionalized literacy in the Hittite Empire. And so, after perhaps 30 years of tireless campaigning and peril, Hattusili has built an empire to surpass any Anatolia has seen before. He's brought plunder and slaves. He's brought vassals and international prestige. He's brought literacy and trade routes. And though Hittite kings don't sing of their construction projects in the way the Mesopotamian kings do, we know that he's built the city of Hattusha from a grassy ruin to a major international city. Though at this point, it may not have been more than maybe 10,000 people within its walls. And he had filled it full of temples to the gods, both native and imported. Most spectacular of the ones we know about from this period was a great temple to the sun goddess of Arina, one of the two divine patrons of the royal family, which included a life-sized golden statue of the goddess, another golden statue of himself, and walls plated with silver and almost certainly inscribed with a much more complete account of the great king's accomplishments than what survives to this day. Divine favor and historical immortality, even if the great temple would eventually be plundered and all the bejeweled writings melted down. But that's how it is. The wealth was gained through plunder, and centuries later would be lost to plunder. We can bemoan the loss of history, but we can't deny the poetic balance of it. But in all this, he's not achieved a lasting, solid victory. To his west, He's fought against and taken land against Arzawa in some campaign years after his first one was interrupted by the Hurrian invasion. But still, there are quite a lot of independent kings on that frontier who require humbling. To the north, perhaps from the Caucasus Mountains, the semi-nomadic Cascans are beginning to stir, a people who will plague the kingdom for its entire existence. But most importantly, in Syria, the great power of Yamhad had taken a number of defeats, but is still organized, hostile, and determined to retake the cities that Hattusili now rules over. At home, the Hittite government portrays this as a liberation against wicked Aleppo, and when discussing his conquests, Hattusili takes credit for his mercy and humanitarianism, stating, I, the great king Tabarna, took the hands of the enemy's slave girls from the handmills, I took the hands of his male slaves from the sickles. I freed them from the taxes and the corvee labor. I unharnessed them from their loads and gave them over to my lady, the sun goddess of Arina. But while we can perhaps wonder at the true extent of Hattusili's mercy, concluding at most that he was good to his friends and bad to his enemies, the issue of Yamhad was not going to be solved with liberationist propaganda was going to be solved with violence, and that violence appears to have taken up his final years. Indeed, while we have no direct histories of Hattusili's waning years, we're pretty sure that in 1620 BCE, he finally landed a blow on the city of Aleppo itself, marching his army up to the walls for a great confrontation. However, this battle was not a victory. And while we don't know the details, the great king, perhaps aged around 50 or 60 at this point, 
took a severe wound during the fighting. Later Hittite kings would almost invariably lead and issue commands from the rear of the army, despite all their claims to be mighty warriors, but Hattusheli may have taken his wound upon his royal chariot in the thick of the fighting. He would be the only Hittite king to die as a result of battle injuries, and he was so stubborn that he wouldn't even die right away. We can guess that the wound itself healed, but he later took an infection, since he was able to make it all the way back to the dynastic capital at Kusara, where upon his deathbed, he had enough time to dictate a remarkable will, Hattusheli's political testament, that shook the Hittite court to its core. To properly understand it, though, we need to step back a bit to Hattusheli's grandfather, and a part of the story that I skimmed over earlier, partly because much of it is speculative and partly because it just fits better here. Though monogamy was the rule for most of Anatolian society, the kings were highly polygamous, taking an array of wives and consorts. This was partly a perk of the job, but also many key government roles needed to be filled by direct relatives of the king, including the job of heir to the throne. And so it was important for the king to have a large number of sons, to take up roles as leaders of cities, top generals, and ministers of high government functions. In Hattusheli's grandfather's time, it appears that the founding king chose a son-in-law, rather than a direct son to be his heir. This man was married to a king's daughter named Tawanana, and the man was given the name Labarna. Both of these would come to be titles for the king and his primary queen soon enough, but in this early stage it's unclear whether these are names or titles. In any case, the selection of a son-in-law, even if this did technically make him the son of a king, caused the rebellion at Sanahuita that tore apart the fledgling kingdom. The exact connection between Hattusheli and his grandfather is unclear, except that he claims legitimacy not through his father, whoever it may have been, but by being a nephew of Tawanana, daughter of the king. He may well have been a nephew from the other side of the family, a son of the betrayed son-in-law Labarna's brother or sister, or one of Hattusheli's parents may have been a direct sibling of Tawanana, but from an obscure part of the family tree. Hittite dynastic politics is, as you can see, a bit of a mess. Whatever the case, it may have been partly to distance himself from the rebellious line that he established his capital in the accursed city of Hattusha. But as we speed back through the years of his reign, we see that the instability of royal succession has not diminished in the slightest. All of which brings us to the great king, lying on his deathbed in the city of his ancestors, the city of Anita and Labarna, and now of Hattusheli himself ancient Kassara. He's surrounded by his royal guard, the high ministers of the government, plus an impromptu Panku council of important people, hastily summoned to hear what may have been Hattusheli's final words. In his testament, the aged king proclaims nothing but disgust at the behavior of his children and his immediate family. Until now, no member of my family has obeyed my will he complains, with some justification. 
While we have no sense of when these things happened, it seems that the king's first choice of heir had been a direct son, a man named Hosiah, who had been given a chunk of conquered territory to rule directly, so that he may better learn the arts of rulership. However, it seems that someone within this territory gained the ear of the governor and convinced him that when Hattushili had conquered the city, he had improperly performed certain rituals of purification, leaving the holy spaces still defiled, a religious insult to the land, though it isn't clear if this was an intentional or imagined slight. This spiraled into full-on rebellion, which was quickly crushed, and the heir of the throne was either killed or, at the very least, removed from noble life. The next affront was from the son assigned to govern over Zalpua, Hakar Pili, who may have decided to take the throne while his father was occupied on one of his many campaigns. This too was crushed and Hakar Pili removed. But most severe and most threatening was his daughter's revolt in the middle of the Hattian heartland, threatening Hattusha and the court itself. Hattushili blames the local Hattians for convincing his daughter that the great king would deny his grandson his rightful inheritance. There is no son for your father's throne. The servant will sit on it. The servant will become king was apparently the rumor which incited the entire court and all his remaining sons, under the apparent command of his daughter, to bring the heartland into civil war. This last must have been fairly recent, since it is part of the testament that his daughter, as well as all her children and direct family, are to not only be stripped of noble rank, but that their names are never to be spoken again. Any who dared violate this command was to have their throat cut and their body hung from the palace wall. This servant, the man who had incited Hattushili's nameless daughter to rebel, was his nephew, the man whom he had chosen as heir after he had run out of non-traitorous sons. However, for all that the Testament portrays this as a matter of inheritance rights and treasonous slander, on his deathbed, Hattushili seems to have realized that his choice of heir was in fact just as bad as people said he was. It is completely possible that the great king had only limited personal interactions with his nephew up until his final weeks and months, and whatever he saw in him convinced him that the slander may not have been so false as all that. The youth is an abomination to the sight, Hattushili exclaimed after meeting with him. He sheds no tears. He was without compassion. He was cold and pitiless. Despite trying to raise an heir who would understand the value of the diplomatic side of the Hittite Empire, the need to keep countless factions happy and working together under a common banner, he proved to be selfish and nepotistic. We know very little about this young man, but let's hear the dying king tell us all about his failings. He gave no word to the king, but to the words of his mother, that serpent, he did give heed. His brothers and sisters constantly brought hostile words to him. He listened to their words. He showed no consideration for the will of the king. How then can he be well disposed towards Tusha? His mother's a serpent, 
And it will come to pass that he will always give heed to the word of his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. He will come forth to take revenge to the warriors, the dignitaries, and the servants who are appointed as the king's people. He will swear, Behold, because of the king they will die, and it will come to pass that he will destroy them. He will cause much bloodshed and have no qualms. However, my enemies abroad I have conquered with the sword, and I have brought peace and tranquility to the land. It shall not happen that he will, in the end, plunge my land into turmoil. Disobedient to the reigning king may not necessarily sound like a flaw to us, but it certainly was one to the said reigning king. As well, being so ham-handed in favoring his own family and faction, to the extent of igniting one civil war against the king's own daughter, and apparently causing another one to stir around the king's deathbed, was more than enough reason for Hattusili to summon the heir to his bedside and strip him, not just of his coming crown, but even of the adoption into the family that had made him eligible to become noble in the first place. The great king records in his testament that when he did this, his mother bellowed at me like an ox, screaming, oh, They've torn asunder in the womb the living body of me, a mighty ox. They've ruined him, and you will kill him. But amid all the drama, the great king was there to settle everyone down. The terrible heir would be removed, but so long as he swore off politics, and behaved himself, he would be granted a modest estate for his retirement, and with good conduct would be allowed to come visit Hattusha from time to time. But as Hattusili I drew in his final breaths, it was now clear to all that there was no heir to the throne of Hattusha, nor to the massive empire the great king had built. And so, in his final testament, he announces that just as Hattusili himself had been the grandson of the previous king, so too would his successor be one of his grandsons. Calling him forward, he instructed all present to bow before the soon-to-be king of the Hittite Empire, Mershili. Mershili is going to lead the Hittite Empire to some of its most glorious achievements, outdoing his impressive father and reshaping the landscape of the ancient Near East. Indeed, his two great campaigns will set the stage for the entire rest of the Late Bronze Age, and making him perhaps the most important historical figure since Sargon the Great and one of the most pivotal characters in ancient history. And yet, almost no one knows of him, and distressingly little survives from his incredible life. And so join us next week as we look at the campaigns of Mershili, bid farewell to no fewer than two great powers, and discuss exactly why this man, who you've probably never heard of, changed the course of human history in the way few men have ever done. Thank you for listening.